All right. Good to see you guys this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. This package seems like it's seen better days, right? If you're wondering, Rick, was it your job to wrap it this week? I'm not the one who wrapped this. I'm not responsible for this. We'll talk about this a little bit more. If you're wondering, what's, what's the deal? Why are we bringing a big box out on stage? Well, we're in this series called Regifting. And, and what we're focusing in on in the middle of this series is this. What would it be like if we could be a gift to the world for Jesus. And thinking about that as followers of Jesus, let's be a gift to the world for Jesus. This has been our drumbeat. This has been our series thesis. I bet some of you can say it from memory now, but I'll put it on the screen. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. If we want to live our lives in such a way that we could be a gift, that we can help other people discover Jesus, then that means that they're going to experience what we're like before they know what he's like. They're going to have an encounter with us before they have an encounter with him. And for those of us who are driven by our mission, for those of us who love Jesus, who want to be a gift to the world for Jesus, this is what we recognize, that we want we want people's encounters with us to be like an encounter with Jesus, to be like an experience with the gospel. And for those of you who are here today watching online, you got questions and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, it's our hope that this series and this message in particular today helps you better see Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. But before we do, I want to ask a question. I might feel like a change of subject, but this has been bouncing around my head a little bit. I want to share it with you. Here's my question today. What is a limit in your life that if you could get rid of it, you'd feel more free? Feel free to answer this as realistically or unrealistically as you like. I bet you have an answer. And as you're thinking about what your answer might be, let me acknowledge that there's at least three categories of limits that we have to negotiate. There might be more, but there's at least three. Limits on what I should and shouldn't do. Limits on what I can and can't do. And limits on what I want and don't want to do. Do you know who just has a really hard time respecting the reality of limits in life. Do you know who's notorious for ignoring limits? It's people. They're the worst. People are the worst at just living with inside the reality of limits. And, and let's, just, let's pick this one right here, what I should and shouldn't do. Even if you disagree with me on what right and wrong is, even if you and I were to have very different viewpoints on what people should and shouldn't do, isn't it true that everybody falls short of their own standard, their own viewpoint? This is the play along part of the message. Get ready to raise your hand. Raise your hand if this is true. How many of you would say, I have intentionally done things that I know I should not have done? Look at all of these horrible people in here. You should be ashamed of yourself. All right, let's look at it from the opposite way. How many people would say, I've intentionally not done something that I know I should have done? It's, yeah, it's all of us. We struggle with limits. What about limits in this category, what I can and can't do? Does anybody love chicken wings? Man, I love buffalo wings. And I love mangoes. And every time we'll go out for them, my wife says this, Rick, do not order the mango habanero wings. You know you can't handle them. What do I do every time? I order the mango habanero wings. And a few hours later when I'm suffering, I get zero sympathy from my wife. What about this one? There are limits around what we want and don't want. We got to live within those limits. Do you know why Amazon will never run out of money? Because even though we decide, I don't want to spend any more money, but I just discovered this thing on Prime that's a great deal that I now need. There's just something inside. We're born with it. We struggle with limits. There's something inside of every two-year-old that believes the mythology. Limits means no freedom, and freedom means no limits. 
And even though it's a childish mythology that we are born with, we bring it into adulthood, don't we? We repackage it into something more sophisticated, but we carry this idea that the limits means no freedom. I want to share with you a perspective from a pastor I love. His name's Tim Keller. He talks about the reality of limits. Listen to this. He says, in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. What is he talking about? Finding freedom inside of limits. Those that fit with the reality of our nature and the world produce greater power and scope for our abilities and deeper joy and fulfillment. Instead of insisting on freedom to create spiritual reality, shouldn't we be seeking to discover it and disciplining ourselves to live according to it? I'm starting with a major assumption today, and I want to put my cards on the table and let you know what the, the assumption that I'm starting with that Jesus was the most free and most fulfilled person in all of human history. He was the most free and most fulfilled person in all of human history. And when we see him, we see a life of freedom and fulfillment. And when we really see him, I think we see the kind of life deep down that we want most. Jesus brings good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And earlier I said, for those of us who are just captivated by Jesus and we're trying to live our lives on mission, we want an, an encounter with us to be like an encounter with the gospel. So today we gotta, we gotta make sure we understand some things about the gospel. We're gonna spend a lot of time focusing on the gospel. If you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. I think this is a helpful thing to remember. The gospel is highly practical and deeply theological. Highly practical and deeply theological. Believing the gospel is like taking on a set of bifocals, and it gives us a couple of lenses that if we look through at the same time, we're able to see reality as it actually is. And so we just have tendencies, don't we? Some of us, we naturally gravitate towards the theological stuff, maybe at the expense of the practical. And some of us really gravitate towards and love the practical truth, maybe at the expense of the deep theological stuff. And today, it's my hope that you see that we need both. We need both if we're going to behold the truth and goodness and beauty of Jesus. So today, this is what we're doing. We're going to start off looking at some deep, rich theological truth. And then at the end, building on top of that, we're going to look at some real practical truth that we need. And we do this by looking at Jesus by looking at his life. And today we're looking at a scene from his life that was written by a guy named Matthew, a guy who knew Jesus. He had a front row seat to major events surrounding Jesus. He was perfectly positioned to be able to write a biography of Jesus' life and his teaching. He's trustworthy. And so today we're turning to the gospel of Matthew to look at this scene in Jesus' life. And this is how it starts. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That seems weird. That seems like the exact opposite kind of thing that God would want, right? A few minutes ago, our, one of our pastors stood up here and told you about a big event that we're doing for high school students, and I hope you sign them up. What if he came up here and said, hey, uh, we're going to do this big event, and we're going to take your teenagers, we're going to take them to a really difficult place and expose them to all kinds of temptations. Who's signing their kid up? Well, it just seems, we got to take her. <laughs> that just seems wrong. It seems backwards. What's the backstory? What's going on here? Well, right before this, you could read this in Matthew chapter three. I hope you do. Jesus was baptized. 
And it was, a, it was a really meaningful moment. It was a supernaturally stunning moment. Uh, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus after his baptism. The voice of God the Father came booming out of the heavens. This is my son. I'm so delighted in him. There's a lot going on. And we see a picture of the Trinity. And this is where we're going to start to kind of settle in some deep theological richness. And it's important. We need it. We might even desperately need it. Very recently, a study came out. It was a very straightforward, well-done study asking Americans questions about God, what he's like. And it broke it down in different categories. And I want to share with you some, some of the ways that church-going, self-described evangelicals responded to questions about God. 61% of evangelicals in America believed that Jesus was the first and greatest thing that God made. 55% believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. And if there's anyone in here and, or watching online, you're like, that's kind of what I believe. Let me say, this is not biblical Christianity. This is not how God is presented. And so what we need to do is we're going we're to focus on who God is. And this right here, this report that came out, the State of Theology report, I don't think it's an indictment on folks who go to church as much as it might be an indictment on people who pastor churches. Our jobs as pastors are to teach truth and to do so with clarity. And so I'm going to try and do that right now, to teach the truth about God with clarity. God is a trinity. He's one in being and three in persons. One in being Three in persons. God the Son is not God the Father, and God the Father is not God the Son. God the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. One being, all three persons are the one God. One in being, three in persons. That's who God is. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a he. He's the third person of the Godhead. And God the Son was not created, did not come into being, eternally existing as the second person of the Godhead. And at Christmas, we celebrate that God the Son became incarnate. What does that mean? It means being fully God the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead took on what it meant to be fully human. That's who Jesus is. 100% God, 100% man. When I was a youth pastor, a teenager might have said 200% awesome, but fully God, fully man. That's who Jesus is. So let's look at Matthew 4.1 again. Then Jesus, fully God and fully man, was led not by a force, but by the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If I do my job today, if I'm clear today, this is what we're going to walk away understanding. Jesus took on what it meant to be fully human and fulfilled what humanity was meant for. Jesus took on what it meant to be fully human and fulfilled what humanity was meant for. And all the ways that we fall short of God's glory, Jesus didn't. And all the ways that we violate God's commands and, and violate his limits that he's given us, Jesus fulfilled them. And all the ways that we have broken and are broken, Jesus came to bring forgiveness and healing and restoration. So I want to ask this question, what is the significance then 
of Jesus facing temptation in the wilderness. Is there any significance to that? To being in a barren, hot, inhospitable place. And I want to suggest to you that there is real significance to that. And we're going to be limited in our ability to truly see and appreciate Matthew chapter 4 if we don't read it in light of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where we discovered the first people, Adam and Eve, violated God's good gift of limits. They disobeyed him. And part of the consequence of that is being kicked out of the garden and out into the wilderness. So this is what I want you to see. Adam failed the test in the garden, sending him and all who'd follow to the wilderness Jesus passed the test in the wilderness, returning all who'd follow him to the garden. And the narrative pattern of Scripture, gardens are real places, but they represent something very beautiful, what it means to be in the presence of God. We begin in a garden in the very beginning, the very last chapter in the last book of the Bible. Heaven is described with lush garden imagery. Gardens gardens are represented as a place where we can be with God. Similarly, a wilderness is a very real place, but it represents that place where we are cut off or separated from God. And what we're going to read today in this series of temptations is Jesus' declaration, I will do what you should have done. I will do what you can't do. And I will provide what deep down you want most. Matthew 4, verses 2 through 4, it says this, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness, Jesus was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, and this is what Satan does, he leads with doubt. Are you really who you think you are? Are you really delighted in and loved by the Father? If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The tempter is the devil. The tempter is Satan. And because of where we live and when we live, because we are modern Western people and because we're scientifically educated, there might be a temptation inside of us to understand this as metaphorical. This is not metaphor. This is real. Satan is a real spiritual person who's our enemy. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, people are not our enemies. No matter how people might treat us, no matter how wrong a person or a group of people might be about something, people are not our enemies. There is a real enemy, a real spiritual power and person, Satan. He's our enemy, and he's the one who's beneath and behind the things that we're concerned about. And so this was a chance for us to get personal and to get practical. Is there anybody here who sometimes see people as the problem? All right, it's not just me. Anytime, anytime we're tempted to see people as the problem, anytime we're tempted to treat them as or think of them as or relate to them as they're the problem, could it be we've forgotten this? People are not our enemy, but there is a real enemy that's behind and beneath what's going on. Let me talk to those in the room who might be feeling skeptical, to those of you online who might be feeling skeptical, like how can a serious-minded person How can a scientifically educated person take this kind of stuff seriously? Well, first, let me just start with this. Science is great, and I love it, but it can't do anything to explain the supernatural. 
As a matter of fact, they can't do anything to explain morality, can't do anything to explain beauty, can't do anything to explain human dignity, and might not be able to explain consciousness. But let's just go with it for a second. Let's pretend that the natural world is all there is. If that's the case, people will be your enemy. Because it's up to you to fight and scratch and claw to get what you want in life and out of life. And anytime someone gets in your way or a group of people stand in your way, you've got to overcome them and they'll be your enemy. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have real implications. And you owe it to you because you're so valuable. You owe it to you to really wrestle down the consequences and the implications of the ideas that you take seriously. This is not metaphor. This is real. What's the essence? What's the substance of the first temptation? Turn these stones into bread. Use your rights as God to serve your own immediate needs. Jesus, just use your rights as God to serve yourself. And what we're going to see today in each series of temptations, the way that Jesus responds gives us a viewpoint and a perspective into the gospel. And this is Jesus' response. Jesus gave up his rights as God to serve our ultimate need. And I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what successes you got to celebrate this week. I don't know what stresses might be weighing you down this week, but this is something that we need to hear. Jesus, who is fully God, gladly, willingly gave up his rights to serve your need. Do you know why? Because he loves you. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, leading with doubt, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Do something awesome, Jesus. For it is written, God will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Kind of force God to have to respond to you. Show off right now. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, this is, there's a lot going on here. There's some real spiritual stuff going on, but this is not metaphor. This is real. What's the real essence? What's the substance behind this second temptation? It's this. Abuse the word to force the Father to serve your agenda. Twist the word. Abuse God's word to put yourself in a position where God has to where God is obligated to come in and do something for you. It's interesting to know, what did Jesus do the first time he was tempted? He quoted scripture. Now, this is a tactic of the enemy. This is a tactic of Satan to come and quote scripture to try and get Jesus to sin. It's a practical thing we gotta recognize. People will twist God's word to violate God's way. There will be times that there's a temptation to twist God's word to violate his will. I heard someone say this years ago. The Bible is like uh, a torture victim. Abuse it long enough, and it'll say anything you want. It's not enough that we know what the Bible says. We have to understand what it means. But we have to know how to apply it. How did Jesus respond? Jesus' response, again, shows us the gospel. Jesus, the embodied word, freely served the Father's agenda. Jesus is the word of God and the flesh, the mind of God and the flesh, the beauty of God and the flesh, the reason for living in the flesh. And Jesus freely served the Father's agenda. 
What's the Father's agenda? To bring love and healing and forgiveness and acceptance to you and to me for all the morally busted and broken things in our lives. His agenda was to bring love and healing to you and me. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I grew up in church. I grew up going to Sunday school. I grew up learning all the, all the Bible stories. And this is the one temptation that I always thought was a dumb one. This never made any sense to me. Jesus, worship me. That makes no sense. Like, why would Jesus fall for that? It wasn't until I saw it differently that I, I felt like I understood what was going on. And I want to share a perspective with you that maybe is helpful. This is the essence of the temptation. Get what you deserve without having to suffer what you don't deserve. That is powerful in its appeal. How many times does that get us? Get what you deserve without having to suffer what you don't deserve. And again, in the way that Jesus responds, we see the gospel. Jesus took what we deserve so we can have what he deserves. Now, this is a slowdown moment. If there's, ever, if there's ever been a moment you're like, I don't understand Christians. Like, I don't understand why you guys are all about this. If there's ever a time that the gospel doesn't make sense, let's slow down and really look at this. Let me explain to you why Christians are so excited in the cross, why we sing about what Jesus did on the cross, why we focus on it so much, because on the cross, Jesus took all the penalty, all the cost, all the shame, all the hurt, all the consequence for sin that I did, that you did, that he didn't do. He took on what he didn't deserve. So that in exchange, he could give to us what we don't deserve. And he doesn't just give us acceptance. He doesn't just give us forgiveness. He makes us co-heirs with him in God's kingdom. And Jesus took what we deserve so that we can have what only he deserves. In this message, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take an honest look at the deep theological richness and truth of the gospel and also see the highly practical truths of the gospel. And there's a passage in the New Testament that I think helps us to see both with clarity. Hebrews chapter four says this, for we do not have a high priest that's talking about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with, what's this word? Confidence. Let us approach with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. What's the deep, rich theological truth? Jesus is our high priest. He is our mediator. He is our bridge to God. What's the practical truth? Is that we can be confident in how we come to him that there is no cause or reason for hesitation or insecurity. Can we talk about insecurity for a second? Does anybody in here knows, know what it's like to withhold something about yourself because you don't want to lose face? Does anybody in here knows what it, know what it's like to withhold something about yourself because you don't want to risk rejection or people treating you differently? 
Does anybody know what it's like to withhold something from your spouse or someone who you love and who loves you? Does anybody know what it's like to kind of keep the veneer up? I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, let's just pretend we're okay. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Jesus sees it all. He says, I love you. Don't you dare hesitate in coming to me. You come to me with confidence, without an ounce of hesitation or insecurity, because I am for you. One of my favorite Bible uh, teachers was a man named Warren Wiersbe. He died a few years ago, but talking about these series of temptations in Jesus' life, he said this, He said, our Lord's experience of temptation prepared him to be our sympathetic high priest. It's important to note that Jesus faced the enemy as a man, not as the Son of God. His first word was, man shall not live by bread alone. We must not think that Jesus used his divine powers to overcome the enemy because that is just what the enemy wanted him to do. Jesus used the spiritual resources that are available to us today the power of the Holy Spirit of God, and the power of the Word of God. When Jesus faced temptation, he did not play the God card. He faced it and navigated these temptations, taking on fully what it meant to be a human person, to to experience all the limitations, the good limitations that God gives us, what Pastor Tim Keller would call the liberating restrictions. He responded fully as a man. And so I, I want to make some observations about that, and I want to look again at the verse that kind of kicks off the temptation and the verse that concludes it. And I want to show us a couple of things. Number one, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What I want you to see is that, is that the tempter, the enemy, waited to try and tempt Jesus till he was weak and tired. Then, when the temptation was done, the devil left him, and angels came and attended Jesus. Let's focus on this first. What are you like when you're alone, hungry, and tired? How do you experience your vulnerabilities? And I don't just mean the grumpy version of you that uh, comes out when the server brings the chips and salsa to the table a little too late. When you are at your limits or even past your limits, how do you experience real vulnerabilities, the kind of things you're not proud of? The tempter waited, your enemy and mine waited till Jesus was physically, emotionally, and mentally tired to tempt him. I want to make some observations about temptation. This is where we're turning the corner and to the highly practical truth. Each temptation was an invitation to something good. Eat some bread. God's going to take care of you. Receive worship. Each temptation was an invitation to something good. And every time you are tempted and every time I'm tempted, it's always and only to something good. Did you know that? And if you're thinking, Rick, that sounds super weird. Let me, let me share this. Maybe this will be helpful. Temptation is an invitation to fulfill a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. Temptation is an invitation to fulfill a God-given desire or maybe even a God-given need in a God-forbidden way. It is just too naive and narrow to think of temptation as a desire to do wrong. It's a come and fulfill this need or this desire you have, but ignore the good gifts of limits that God has given to you. And every temptation that we have, it messes with us in two ways. It messes with our insecurities and it messes with our arrogance. This is how it messes with our insecurities. 
Hey, you know the significance that you need, the security that you need, the the satisfaction that you need in life? If you trust God's way, you're never going to get it. You're going to find it on the other side of the limits that God's given you. It messes with our insecurity. This is how how temptation messes with our arrogance. Listen, if you ignore God's gift of limit in your life right now, if you violate his commands, guess what? It's not really going to cost you anything. But even if it does cost you something, you can handle it. Look at how smart you are. I want to share with you something that I learned when I was 12 years old. I was not smart enough yet to know whether or not it was true. 44 years old today, I can tell you I am convinced it is true. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go cost you more than you wanted to pay and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Sin toys with our insecurities and it toys with our arrogance. And notice how Jesus responds. Jesus responded with humility and he responded with incredible trust and God's good gift of limits. Why, at the end of this time of temptation, did angels have to come and attend to Jesus? Because I think he was wiped. I think he was physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted, and he needed supernatural provision. We're getting really practical now. We're building practical on top of the deep theological. I think Jesus shows us that if we trust in God's good gifts of limits, if we just trust his leadership and the limits that he gives to us, God will meet our needs. And I'm not suggesting that angels are going to show up and make you a sandwich. That's not what I'm saying. But if you humbly trust him and follow him, he will meet the needs you have. Do you believe that? Because whether or not we believe that, you know how it's going to be expressed? It's going to be expressed in our relationship with the kind of limits that God gives us. Limits on what we should and shouldn't do. Limits on what we can and can't do. Limits on what we want to do. I don't want to shine a big old spotlight on the fact, again, that the enemy waited to tempt Jesus until he was at his limits. And he had to go to his limits, but he was at his limits. And that's when he was most vulnerable, or that's when he was perceived as most vulnerable, and that's when the enemy came and tempted him. So let me ask you, if the enemy waited to tempt Jesus until he was at his limits, why would we ever live at our limits, knowing that that's where we're most vulnerable? Why would we ever live at our limits Emotionally, physically, financially. Live at our limits with time. Live at our limits relationally. Why would we live at our limits knowing that when we are at our limits or beyond our limits, we are vulnerable? Doesn't stop us. We know how vulnerable we are. Doesn't stop us from living at our limits. And real quick, as we're landing the plane on this message today, I want to give us a little bit more practical insights on how we find freedom and we look like Jesus when we embrace God's good limits as a gift. Let me give you a picture of what freedom could look like. Freedom is found inside the limits of what I should do, what I can do, and what I want to do. Think about decisions you got to make today, this week, all the decisions you're going to make in your life, the dilemmas that you face. You go with the options that honor the limits of what you should do, can do, and want to do. I promise you, you will find freedom. Not some of the time, not most of the time, every time. What happens if we take away this one? I'm going to ignore this limit of what I should and shouldn't do. You will find something less than freedom. 
You will be enslaved to regret. You'll be enslaved to guilt and shame. You'll be enslaved to what the Bible calls sin. Well, what if I try to honor this and try to honor this, but I ignore what I can and can't do? What you will discover is you will be enslaved to a kind of inadequacy and insecurity. Well, what happens if I, if I honor this and I honor this, but it doesn't line up with what I want to do? You will find yourself enslaved to a kind of duty, a life without passion, a cold compliance. When we honor and fulfill and just kind of chase down choices and make the choices that honor the limits that God's given us on what we should and shouldn't do, what I want to do and what I can do, we find freedom. But what happens when we ignore our limits? What do we look like? What do we look like? What are we like when we live at our limits or try to live beyond our limits? We are ragged and we are restless. I want to share this with you today. Remember, we're trying to look like Jesus. God gave us limits as a gift. If we don't embrace them, how can we be a gift? How appealing does this package look right here? Kind of a mess. There might be something good in here, but there's nothing about the way that it's wrapped that makes me want to look inside. And there might be something good in you. There might be something good in me. We might have Christ with us, but if we're not trusting him, if we're not embracing his gift of limits as something good, we're not going to look like him. We're going to look ragged and restless. And I'm suggesting today, let's trust in what he has done for us. And then let's follow the example that he set for us. We can't just relate to him as an example. If we do, he will crush us. He's not just our example. He is our savior. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then from that place where we trust in him and we're forgiven by him and we're made new by him, now we follow his way. And when we do that, our lives can be a gift to the world for Jesus. When people see us, when people experience us, they can get a glimpse of what he's like and the good life that he offers. We're at the point in the service now where we like to create a moment where we can intentionally respond. There's all kinds of ways to respond intentionally. Everybody's got a response today. Even apathy is a response. But I'm asking you, would you use this moment to respond intentionally to what God wants to do in your life, what he's leading? For some of us, maybe the response is, God, I'm just grateful today. I'm grateful for what you've done and I want to express that. Maybe some of us, we know Jesus. Our response to Jesus is, I'm grateful for what you did for me, but I'm not showing it by the way that I live. I'm living at my limit. I'm living beyond my limit and I'm vulnerable to all kinds of stuff. I want to trust you. I need to repent of that. I need to embrace the limits you've given me as a gift. And then some of us today, maybe you saw Jesus in a way you've never seen him before and you realize you've been living your life based on yourself. You've been your own leader. You've been your own authority and you are ready to trust in Jesus as the savior and the leader of your life. Now I would invite you to pray, Jesus, I give my life to you. I believe what you did on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead and I find my hope in you today. I'm coming to you with confidence. However you want to respond, I want to ask you to respond intentionally. I'm going to pray, and it's your time to do that. Heavenly Father, 
You are beautiful. You are good. You are holy. You are love. And when we see Jesus, we see what you are like. Hey, God, we pray that for those who don't yet know him, that today would be a day that they see him more clearly. God, for those of us who do know him, that you would use us as the kind of people that make it easier for other people to see and know him. And it's his name we pray. Amen.